Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through his word. Be blessed. Blessings to everyone today in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah. Today I have Laura with me as we're recording and also Alan, and they have been with me the whole time that we've gone through this letter that Paul has written to the Romans. Make sure you go back and listen to the background that we did for this letter in chapters 1, 2, and 3 as well. And today we will be covering chapter 4. At the end of chapter 3 and verse 31, Paul says, Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be, on the contrary, we establish the law. And as we move through what Paul is saying in chapter 8, we will see how the law is established through faith in Christ. We're talking about the moral aspects of the law, God's character. How is it established? Through a life in the Spirit. Now we're going to flow into the fourth chapter after we saw in chapter 3 that the righteousness of God is revealed that was witnessed by the law and the prophets, the old covenant scriptures, by this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and being justified as a gift. So by this faith in Jesus Christ, we have been justified before God. We have been declared holy, innocent, and we are not guilty anymore. The wrath of God is not against us, but by faith in Christ, now we are justified. So as we come into chapter 4, what Paul is going to do is to really illustrate for us, we have always come to God by His grace through faith. We never came to God by law. And we're going to see what he earlier said nine years earlier in the letter he wrote to the Galatians. Now he's going to restate this in chapter 4. It is by faith that a man is made righteous before God. And so let's start in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him as righteousness. Quoting from Genesis 15. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. And I want to stop there because that last statement is so critical for us to understand how we come to God. In this verse 4, he says, Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. If we believe that by our righteous actions, by what we do, by our works, that we can come to God and receive God's salvation, then salvation is something that God owes us. Because when you work for something, if you go to a job and you work 40 hours a week or 60, 70 hours a week, At the end of the week, what you have worked for, that employer better give you what you worked for. It is owed to you. You have earned it. 
And what Paul is saying, when it comes to God's righteousness for this everlasting, this eternal salvation, this everlasting life where it's finished, it is completed, and that we will live eternally with God, if you think for a moment that you're going to come on your own righteousness, that you're sadly mistaken, if you have that mindset, then God owes you something. God has looked at your life and said, you are righteous, you earned it, you worked for it, and now I must give it to you. That's how it happens with a work-for-reward system. But God's kingdom does not function on a work-for-reward system. It functions on His grace. I challenge everybody to read Matthew chapter 20, verses, I believe it's 1 through 16. And look at those verses as it relates to chapter 19 and the dialogue with the rich young ruler, because it's an explanation of the second part of an answer that Jesus gives to his disciples. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's a negating principle that is saying through this parable, everything within God's kingdom, you must understand, works on the grace of the landowner, the grace of God. We come to God by His grace. It's not something that we can earn. If it was something that we could earn by our works, then God owes us salvation. But Paul understands scripturally that we have always come to God by His grace through faith. Yes, God, and I think we we talked about this uh, a couple podcasts ago, but just how you know, God, God's our creator, right? He knows our weaknesses. He knows our sinful nature. And pride is, is one of the biggest ones. So, you know, he makes this absolutely bulletproof where you can't look and say, wow, look at Alan, Alan's life or, or look at my life or Scott's life. They did such good things or they were a good person or they read their Bible. They attended church as much as they could. None of that works, you know, because if it did, as humans, we would immediately get prideful and say, well, look at me. You owe me just exactly what Paul is saying. And and it's beautiful that, that God does give this to us for free. You know, his, his son Jesus died on the cross for us for free. There's nothing we can do to make him accept us or to make him do that other than accepting his son, Jesus Christ. So that just takes our prideful nature out of it, which God foresaw, you know, when he created us. He knew this was going to come into play, so he just made it bulletproof where we couldn't do that. Yes, and think about Isaiah. We've quoted him many times. He says, our righteousness is as filthy rags. The literal translation of that is as menstrual rags. And if you could think within the Jewish context, the most unclean way or description of righteousness, our righteousness, it would be that description. And so we're unclean. We are undone by our righteousness. We do not stand complete before God. We do not stand holy before God. It takes God's forgiveness to bring us into a right relationship with Him. Yes, on that note about the pride, I think it's so interesting, verse 2, when he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, which we know he's not, he has something to boast about. So only if he was justified by works would he have something to boast about, and especially he wouldn't be able to boast before God. And I, I agree with both of you that pride and that boasting, as we look at our lives and we have this mentality of work for reward system, you ask some people, are you saved? And some of them say, yes, I've been in the church for 30 years or I go to church every week, or I pay my tithe and I do this or that. 
And it really reflects a lot about their understanding of the Word of God. Are you saved? Yes, I am saved. By the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and by the empty tomb, I am saved. When a person says it in that way, they have a clear understanding of the gospel that we don't have anything to boast about. If we're going to boast, we're going to say like Paul, we're going to boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we recognize that our salvation and our righteousness is in him. And that brings forth humility. If Abraham was justified by his own works, he had something to boast about. But it was credited to him as righteousness because of faith. He came from a family of idol worshipers, which probably meant that he was an idol worshiper. He did not have the true understanding of who God is. And through God revealing himself to Abraham by his grace, he spoke to Abraham, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Paul can identify with this because Paul was zealous for the things of God, but not according to knowledge or truth of what was right. And God got a hold of his life by speaking to him on the road to Damascus. And Paul understands outside of that grace that was extended to his life, he would not have the ability to put faith in Jesus Christ. He would not have the ability to come into a new covenant relationship with God. So I believe that Paul understands Abraham very well. His story and Abraham's story with his story, both of them, just like our story, is based upon God's grace through faith. Now let's move on to verse 5. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Verse 5 is a reflection on verse 4, but the one who does not work, who is not, his focus is not on a work for reward system, but he has faith in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works or actions, and he quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Here we see that the one that trusts in God and puts his faith in God and who has sinned but knows the forgiveness of God in his life, in their life, is blessed of God. Continue to understand everything begins and ends with the forgiveness of God upon a person's life. Let's go to verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Again, a quote from Genesis 15. So now Paul is going to flow into this understanding the circumcised versus the uncircumcised. And here he's going to flow into the thought process of when was the covenant with Abraham established? He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. When did that take place? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And this is the thought process that he's going to bring to our attention. How then was it credited? Verse 10, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Question mark. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. 
That is extremely important that we understand this. Now, circumcision predates the law of Moses. Circumcision also becomes part of the law of Moses, but it predates the law of Moses. And so when we look at this circumcision, when he believed God, it was while he was uncircumcised. And God made a covenant with Abraham while he was uncircumcised, not while he was circumcised. Circumcision is going to come later as a sign of that covenant, that everyone that is under this Abrahamic covenant is going to take physical circumcision, not everyone, the males, and later on in the law of Moses, on the eighth day after a male child is born within Israel, they are to take circumcision. But when we look at this, this is a sign of this covenant that we are circumcised. We're not like the rest of the world that is uncircumcised, but we are circumcised, and this is a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham while he was uncircumcised. Scott, could you relate circumcision as it being a sign of the faith that Abraham had, similar to water baptism being a sign of our salvation? It's a good analogy when you look at the comparisons. What is circumcision of the flesh? It's identification back to Abraham and the God of Abraham and his faith in saying that we believe in the God of Abraham and to make a physical sign of that identification, we take circumcision of the flesh. In the same way with water baptism, water baptism is an outward testimony and a sign to the world that we believe in Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his salvation. And because we are saved, we identify with him and we take water baptism. So both of them function in very similar ways. If you believe in Abraham as your father and the God of Abraham and the covenant that was made with Abraham, then you would take the circumcision of the flesh. In the same way, if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and salvation comes in his name, we will take water baptism as a sign of what God are an expression of what God has done inwardly in our lives that we identify with him. But we don't trust in those as our salvation. Yes, we take water baptism because we are saved. A person would take circumcision of the flesh to say that we believe in the same God that Abraham believes in, and we have been set apart in a covenant relationship with God. Circumcision of the flesh is not our salvation. In fact, Abraham believed God while he was uncircumcised. In the same way, water baptism is not our salvation, but because we do believe and because we are saved, we identify with him in water baptism that speaks of our faith and our salvation and our decision to follow the Messiah. And so do not look at the circumcision of the flesh as your salvation, just like you would not look at water baptism as your salvation, but expression of these covenant relationships with God. And earlier, we dealt with those that look at the circumcision of the flesh 
as salvation. And Paul says earlier in chapter 2, it's the circumcision that comes through the heart, through the Messiah, that really defines true Judaism, biblical Judaism, and who represents a true Jew, one that has been circumcised by the Messiah, not the flesh, but the heart. And I believe we read from Jeremiah chapter 9, the last two verses that brings that out very clearly, that God understood all of Israel as uncircumcised, even though they are circumcised of the flesh, because their hearts are not circumcised. So never look at these things as your salvation. What brought the Hebrew people in a covenant relationship with God. It was God's grace through faith. What brings us into this new covenant relationship with God? It's God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In the Abrahamic covenant, what was the sign of that? What was the seal of that? The circumcision of the flesh. In the new covenant, what is the sign of that? The circumcision of the heart. And what do we do? Those that have been circumcised of the heart, we take water baptism, which identifies us with that faith. All right, let's continue. Let's read verse 11. And he, talking about Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe, the people of faith, without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Now, it's a long way of saying this reality, that Abraham is the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He is the father of faith. And anyone that is in a covenant relationship with the God of Abraham through faith, Abraham is their father. Now, when we were young, we used to sing a song called Father Abraham. And children love this song. Adults do not love it as much because it has a lot of actions and it's very exhausting. But the song says, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. Now, think about this kids in Birmingham, Alabama, who are not, many of them, circumcised. They're coming from a non-Jewish background, but they're singing the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. Let's just praise the Lord. And it is theologically correct for them to understand that Abraham is their father, not because they're circumcised of the flesh, but because they're young people of faith that believe in the God of Abraham, and they have come to the God of Abraham through a new covenant, which was established through the blood of Yeshua, the Messiah, and now they stand in God's righteousness, and they are people of faith. Whether they're circumcised or not, Abraham is their father. Now, some people get really upset when you say that. How dare they say that they're the children of Abraham? But remember, Abraham was uncircumcised when God saved him. 
God brought him into a covenant relationship through faith. Just like those children may or may not be circumcised of the flesh, but they believe in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. They believe in the God that brought forth the Messiah and the forgiveness of sins in his name, and God's righteousness is in him. And by faith, they believe in him, and they can truly, scripturally, look back and say, Abraham is my father. And just looking at this context of Paul writing to Jewish believers and Gentile believers, I mean, you look at Abraham, um, you know, who God revealed himself to, you know, as the God of creation, the one true God, um, away from all these other idols that were back there at his time. It's incredible that Paul is bringing that back to the foundation of Abraham and saying, you know, Abraham was uncircumcised. He is the father of the Gentile believers, and he's the father of the Jewish believers. And God in his plan, I mean, it's incredible that he knew this was going to happen. He knew at first it was going to be to the Jews. He was going to establish himself through Israel, but eventually it was going to come to the Gentiles. But he knew that all the way back when he was speaking to Abraham, and he became our father through faith, not through anything that we could do. Yes, and think of promises that God makes to Abraham, the father of faith, that through your seed, Abraham, all the families, sometimes translated nations, shall be blessed, Abraham, because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham is the father of faith, and both Jewish and Gentile background believers come together as one through faith in Christ. And so that's why Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, bond nor free, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so through this faith in Christ Jesus for this eternal salvation, this everlasting life, we're following in the footsteps of Abraham our Father, who is the Father of faith. Now let's continue to read, starting in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, or to his seed, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. Let's talk about that. The law was given 430 years after the covenant that was made with Abraham. Now, if you look at that historically, he says that in Galatians, the 430 years follows the last confirmation of that covenant before the tribes of Israel come into the land of Egypt. What it is emphasizing is that the covenant was already made. They were already the people of faith, and the promises made to Abraham predate the Mosaic law. Now, in verse 15, we're going to see one of the purposes of why the law has come that's been consistent of what Paul is saying. For the law brings about wrath. And we're going to see this continue, that the law makes sin clear. The law brings in the understanding of sin in such a way that God's judgment comes against anyone who's breaking the law. For the law brings about wrath, But where there is no law, there also is no violation. Now, in chapter 7, we're going to see this whole dialogue of Paul that before he was taught the law, he was alive. But when the law came, what should have brought life to him brought death because he saw that he could not live up to the aspect of the moral aspects of the law. He was taught not to covet, 
but he found himself coveting even more when he was taught the law. So when we look at this statement here, going all the way back to chapter 1, we're seeing probably in a judicial understanding that here you have mankind doing evil, breaking God's moral character, and the understanding of their sin is death. Later on, we're going to see the wages of sin is death. The result of their sin is death, death spiritually, death physically, that because they have all sinned from Adam on, all have died. But from a judicial standpoint, how can you have violation if there isn't a law? If the three of us move to a land and we're living in the land and there's not any law and we're a law unto ourselves, what's the only thing that will guide us? Chapter 2, our conscience. It's a law written in our hearts, knowing right and wrong. There is a law that is in our hearts that we know right from wrong. We know if something is evil and something that is good many times. Now, there is a seared conscience that Paul talks about to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy later on. Here, if we're living in a land and there's not any law, and Alan does something against God's character— Is there a violation when there is no law? Paul is saying there is no violation. In what sense is he talking about that, that we're not responsible for our sin? No, I don't believe that that is the context, because when you go back to chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. So humanity walked away from God. They are responsible for their own sin. And we see the judgment of God upon humanity prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law, Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at Noah. Noah and his family were the only family that was saved from the wrath of God that came upon the earth because of the wickedness upon the earth. So what Paul is talking about, that there is no violation of the law because the law has not come through Moses. It is not speaking that we are not responsible for our own actions. We see that very clearly within scriptures. But where there is no law, there is no violation. So there's not a violation against the law. Just like if Laura, Allen, and myself moved to a land where there was no law, how can you violate the law if there is no law, but we would still be responsible for our own actions and our own sin before God, and are we reflecting the character of God? All that we would have at that time would be the internal law, our conscience, that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2. I say that, and I want to be emphatic about it, because some people have used this one statement over and over again to say, because the Mosaic law isn't in this country, people that are there are not responsible for their sin. Here, Paul is constantly and consistently making us responsible for our actions, and from the very beginning, we walked away from God, and the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Therefore, we're responsible for our actions. And when you get to chapter 3, 
both Jew and Gentile, both those who have the law of Moses and do not have the law of Moses are responsible for their life, and no one will stand before God righteous because there is none that is righteous, there is not even one. So please see this statement within the context of what Paul is saying. Now let's move on to verses 16 through 25, and let's read these verses one verse at a time. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Gentile and Jewish believers who have come to God by faith. The promises are for us. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. That is a quote from Genesis 17. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Genesis 15. So Abraham is going to become the father of many nations, plural, of the nations of this earth because of his faith not because of the law. These promises are made before the law was instituted. Verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he looked at his life, 99 years of age. Sarah was 89 years of age looking at her womb, looking at the deadness of his own body, even though people at that time frame within history are living much longer than we do today, Sarah is beyond the time of giving birth to children. He contemplated his own body as good as dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. He did not lack faith. He did question. Questioning something is not always an act of unbelief because he says in Genesis, have you considered my son Ishmael? But remember, Ishmael was not the son of the promise. So he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Again, a quote from Genesis 15 that we've quoted many times. Yes, he had questions whether or not this would take place, but he continued to believe his faith grew stronger and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it was credited, and those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Think about that. Just like Abraham continued to believe God, that God would bring forth his promises, and the promise is coming through a son that would come through Sarah. His faith grew stronger and stronger, and he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he becomes the father of faith to many nations. This is what is being said. In the same way, 
we walk by faith, and the Roman believers walk by faith that Jesus died for their sins, and he rose from the dead, and we believe that Jesus is alive, and because he's alive, we shall live. And we look at that reality. Just like Abraham believed God, and he walked in faith in things that he did not see with his own eyes, the Roman believers, both Jews and Gentiles, have to believe that Jesus died for their sins, and he was raised from the dead, and he lives, and he's coming back again. And we're not going to grow weary in our faith. We're going to continue to grow stronger and stronger. And just like they believed and Abraham believed, today we believe Jesus is alive. And look at the next verse. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions. Read Isaiah 53. Delivered over for our transgressions. Talking about Israel. And now Israel is bringing the gospel to the world. He is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. He was delivered over for our transgressions and raised because of our justification. What it is saying is that the cross, the Lamb of God, that God brought forth his Lamb as a propitiation, and he died on the cross for our transgressions, that the righteousness of God is in that act, And that is our salvation. And because of that, he was raised for our justification. And when he comes out of the grave, we know that we are justified. That the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, it is finished. It was holy. This is the righteousness of God. And the grave could not hold him down because we are justified by what Jesus did upon the cross And now when he comes out of the grave, he has the keys of death, Hades, and the grave. And because he's alive, we're alive, and we are justified by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just looking at that last verse, you know, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions, this wasn't something God had to do. This wasn't something Jesus had to do. God didn't have to send his son, but he did because of us, because of our transgressions, but not just because he had to make it right. And then the last part of that verse, because of our justification, he wanted to, he chose to, you know, it's this grace that we've been talking about this whole chapter is that we can't do anything on our own. We couldn't be the atoning sacrifice for this. It had to be somebody that was spotless, sinless, which was Jesus. And it's just incredible that he did this all for us. And this was by choice that God, because he loves us, because he knew that we were going to fall short already had this in place and in plan, and it's just such an amazing thing you can think about where somebody that goes against someone their whole life, their whole nature is to disobey and to be disobedient and to do things that, you know, really hurt the heart of God. God still said, I'm going to reach out to justify those who will have faith in me, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful presentation of, of the gospel. Yes, and when we get to the next chapter, for God demonstrates his own love towards us, And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is not something that he had to do, but it was predetermined. Think about this. Before God made all of creation, God is all-knowing. He knew that his special creation, those that were created in his image, would sin and rebel against God and walk away from God. Yet God already had a plan of redemption before he created all things. 
a redemption that would come from himself, from his anointed one, from his son, that would bring salvation to the world. It's not something he had to do, but it was already predetermined by God's character who knows all things that his creation, his special creation, would sin against him, but he already had a plan of redemption for us. And that is our salvation. Now, going back to chapter 3, when you look at verses 21 through 26, the question, again, when we understand God's grace and that we come to him by faith, where then is their boasting it is excluded. If we're going to boast, we're going to boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have faith in God through his Messiah and this salvation, and we're going to boast in him. And he was delivered up for our transgressions, and he was raised for our justification. And we are justified today by faith. Something that the law cannot do. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in the sight of God. But now through faith in Christ, who is God's righteousness revealed, we are justified before God. So God as lawyer is standing in the heavenly high court, and he is looking at your life and all of your sin. And he is saying, now through my son, Jesus Christ, and this atonement and the empty tomb, by your faith, you are innocent, you are set free, you belong to me. I have adopted you into my family. And praise God for that. Where would there be boasting then? If it's by a works for reward system, God owes me salvation. God, I did this. I was 51% good, 49% evil, and I've got a 2% advantage on my part. Therefore, I have earned salvation, and God, give me 2% of heaven. Nobody would think in that way. Nobody would really come before the creator of all the universe, the holy God. He is holy in every aspect of his being and say, God, I was 51% good. I was 70% good. I was 80% good. God, I've earned salvation. You can try that, but you will fail. The only way that you can come before God is in his righteousness through his son, through his Messiah, and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will never be disappointed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great salvation that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. We walk by faith, and our faith is not growing faint. It's becoming stronger and stronger day by day. He's alive, and because he's alive, we live today. And we believe he's coming back again. And Lord, we are the people of faith, and our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for everyone that is listening. If there's someone that does not have true faith that comes from the heart, I pray today will be the day of salvation for their lives. Let them put their faith and trust in your Messiah, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at integrity global missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.